Good morning, everybody. I am Freddie, and uh, it's good to be worshiping with you this morning. I was waving to some new faces this morning, so here, my name's Freddie. Good to see you. Uh, let's make it a goal to meet somebody new before we leave here this morning. Under the word, under Jesus Christ, we are one. And as James reminded me this morning, we are brothers and sisters. So this morning, our scripture reading is from the book of Acts. And we are in chapter 12 this morning. If you have your Bibles, you can follow with me or on the screen. We're going to have the scripture come up. It's a fairly long passage, so if... Uh, if, if you need to sit down, go ahead if you're unable to stand for the whole reading. And here we enter in to the Holy Spirit story in the book of Acts. Chapter 12. It was about this time that King Herod arrested some who belonged to the church, intending to persecute them. He had James, the brother of John, put to death with the sword. And when he saw that this pleased the Jews, he proceeded to seize Peter also. This happened during the Feast of Unleavened Bread. After arresting him, he put him in prison, handing him over to be guarded by four squads of four soldiers each. Herod intended to bring him out for public trial after the Passover. So Peter was kept in prison. But the church was earnestly praying to God for him. The night before Herod was to bring him to trial, Peter was sleeping between two soldiers bound with two chains, and sentries stood guard at the entrance. Suddenly an angel of the Lord appeared, and he struck Peter upside the head. Wake up! Quick, get up! And he said, the chains fell off Peter's wrists. And the angel said to him, put on your clothes and sandals, and Peter did so. Wrap your cloak around you and follow me, the angel told him. Peter followed him out of the prison. But he had no idea that what the angel was doing was really happening. He thought he was seeing a vision. They passed the first gate, and the second guards came to the iron gate leading to the city. It opened for them by itself, and they went through it. And when they had walked the length of one street, suddenly the angel left him. And then Peter came to himself, and he said, Now! I know without a doubt that the Lord sent his angel and rescued me from Herod's clutches and from everything the Jewish people were anticipating. When this had dawned on him, he went to the house of Mary, the mother of John, also called Mark, where many people had gathered and were praying. Now Peter knocked at the outer entrance, and a servant girl named Rhoda came to answer the door. She recognized she recognized Peter's voice, and she was so overjoyed that she ran back without opening it. And she was exclaiming, Peter's at the door. You're out of your mind, they told her. When she kept insisting that it was so, they said it must be an angel. But Peter kept knocking, and when they opened the door and saw him, they were astonished. Peter motioned with his hand for them to be quiet, and he described how the Lord had brought him out of prison. Tell James and the brothers about this, he said. And then he left for another place. In the morning, there was no small commotion among the soldiers as to what had become of Peter. After Herod, after Herod had a thorough search done, he did not find him. He cross-examined the guards in order that they be executed. And then Herod went from Judea to Caesarea and stayed there a while. He had been quarreling with the people of Tyre and Sidon. 
They now joined together and sought an audience with him, having secured support of Blastus, a trusted personal servant of the king, on the king's country for their food supply. On the appointed day, Herod, wearing his royal robes, sat on his throne and delivered a public address to the people. And they shouted, this is the voice of a god, not a man. Immediately, because Herod did not give praise to God, an angel of the Lord struck him down and he was eaten by worms and died. But, but the word of God continued to increase and spread. You may be seated. Well, the passage that Freddie has just read for us today is, I think, a great story. And it even follows the pattern of the stereotypical story. Uh, the stereotypical story starts with once upon a time. And there is a monster or a villain. There is a happily ever after. And usually the happily ever after is the point of the story. The story of Cinderella is about whether she will be free from the cruelty of her stepmother and her stepsisters and whether she'll find happiness and love with the prince. And it's not until the happily ever after that the story actually comes to a close and everything's resolved. Uh, question for you. Um, what does every story, every plot line need to make it an interesting story? What does every story need to make it an interesting story? Who said conflict? If I had a chocolate, I've got to start bringing candy up here. If I had a chocolate bar, I'd give it to you. Conflict. Every good story has a tension, a conflict, a problem that needs to be solved. And what keeps us reading is, will there be a happily ever after? The pigs are in danger from the big bad wolf. Will they find safety? Mr. Abercrombie has been murdered. Will they find the murderer before he strikes again? If the ring of power falls into the hands of Sauron, all of Middle Earth is threatened. Will Frodo succeed in destroying the ring? That's what keeps us reading. And Acts 12 is a great story. There is a problem, there is a villain, and there is a sort of happily ever after statement, a clue about what the whole story was about in the first place. But it's no fairy tale. It's a real episode in the great story that's being played out even today and of which we are a part. It's not a passage here in the Bible primarily to tell us that there's power in praying together. I think that's a legitimate principle to draw from the passage, but it's not what the passage is about. This is a story about kingdoms in conflict. It's a story about a great victory. It's a passage that instills confidence. It's a passage that squares our shoulders. It's a passage that reminds us that no matter how things sometimes appear, no power can prevent the advance of the gospel of Jesus Christ and the ultimate absolute victory of the kingdom of God. 
The book of Acts starts with Jesus teaching his disciples about the kingdom of God. And then Jesus' ascension and his declaration to his followers that they will be his witnesses in Jerusalem and Judea and Samaria and ultimately to the ends of the earth. And Acts gives the history of their witness. God's Holy Spirit exploded onto the disciples in Acts chapter 2 and God's power was unleashed through them. People got saved. There were miracles. Thousands in Jerusalem come to faith in Christ. Later, there's revival in Samaria, miracles in other towns in Judea. That sparks persecution, but all that does is send the Christians out all over the place, including Antioch, where the witness of Jesus takes root and impacts that whole region. Gentiles become followers of Jesus. Communities of Jesus' followers spring up in cities all around the Mediterranean world. And Acts ends with Paul in Rome preaching about the kingdom of God in Jesus Christ. And as this story is told, Luke, who is the author of Acts, describes this expanding reach of God's kingdom with two descriptions that show up repeatedly throughout the whole book. And see if you can spot a pattern here. At Pentecost, in Acts chapter 2, after Peter's preaching, there were added that day about 3,000 souls. Chapter 2, verse 47, the Lord added to their number day by day those who were being saved. Acts 4 and verse 4, many of those who heard the word believed, and the number of the men grew to about 5,000. Chapter 5, more than ever, believers were added to the Lord. Chapter 6, verse 7, the word of God continued to increase, and the number of disciples in Jerusalem multiplied exceedingly. Chapter 9, 31, the church throughout Judea and Galilee and Samaria had peace and was built up, and walking in the fear of the Lord and in the comfort of the Holy Spirit, it multiplied. Chapter 16, so the churches were strengthened in the faith, and they increased in number. Chapter 19, verse 20, so the word of the Lord continued to increase and to prevail mightily. Throughout the whole book of Acts, you see these two things together, the increase of the word of God and the growth of the church. The word of God is living and active, and where it goes, it bears fruit. The church grows and is strengthened where the word of God is declared and taught and lived. And so to become a Christian in the book of Acts is, chapter 2, verse 41, to receive the word of God. Also chapter 8, verse 14. And that's why the apostles in their ministry spoke the word of God. Chapter 8, verse 25. We saw it happen in Jerusalem. We saw it happen in Judea and Samaria. And we're about to see it happen throughout the Gentile world. But before we get there... We're here in Acts chapter 12, our text for today. Chapter 12 starts with a sort of once upon a time. Look at verse 1. About that time, Herod the king laid violent hands on some who belonged to the church. He killed James, the brother of John, with the sword. And when he saw that it pleased the Jews, he proceeded to arrest Peter also. This was during the days of unleavened bread, and when he had seized him, he put him in prison, delivering him over to four squads of soldiers to guard him, intending after the Passover to bring him out to the people. And so Peter was kept in prison, but the earnest prayer was made to God for him 
by the church. There is a problem. Herod, the villain, has killed James the Apostle, one of Jesus' inner three. Remember Peter, James, and John. Another of the three, Peter, Herod has in prison with, it would appear, the intent of having him also publicly executed. I made reference last week to to Acts chapter 8 and the fact that a major persecution broke out against the church. You might remember that. At that time, though, it looked like there was a bit of a racial dynamic to that persecution. And it was directed primarily at the Hellenistic Jews, that is, Jewish Christians who weren't necessarily born in Judea and who spoke Greek and embraced much Greek culture than many of the hardline Jews would have been comfortable with. So people like Stephen, who was killed, people like Philip, who had to flee and ended up in Samaria. But we're told there that the apostles didn't have to flee, that they remained in Jerusalem. And apparently, being native-born, they weren't at risk. But now we get to chapter 12, and something has changed. Maybe the apostles' formal position that Gentiles could be equally God's people was a step too far for the Jews. And so the tide of public opinion is now against the apostles. And where the church used to enjoy the favor of all the people, now the death of James pleases the Jews. And maybe it's because Peter, who played the decisive role in opening the doors to the Gentiles, maybe that's why he becomes Herod's next target. Don't know. But as this is happening, all of this becomes a major hit to the church. The big bad wolf has blown two houses down, and things look pretty bleak. And in 11 chapters of Acts so far, this is the weakest that we have seen the church. We don't have to think very hard to make the connection to our day, do we? At our association meetings last weekend, the speaker showed us some stats of the state of Christian belief in Canada and church attendance in Canada. And he hinted that if we project those stats forward just a few years, we might see the end of the Christian church in Canada. Every week in our bulletin, we're reminded of the persecuted church across the world. Countries that are full of Herods who lay violent hands on some who belong to the church. And Christians all over the world are being imprisoned and beaten and killed, sometimes officially, sometimes by attack or at the hands of a mob. And we hear stories sometimes about what God is doing in the world that have you ever felt like it's too little, too slowly, and that the world is just spiraling downward? In our own world and culture of hostile media and spiritually hungry but skeptical neighbors, the kingdom of God doesn't look like much. And Herod looks like he's winning. And it might have felt that way to the Jerusalem church. Many of their converts from the early years, boom, scattered to Antioch and everywhere else. Now James, dead. Peter, in prison, with death virtually certain for him. So what do they do? Well, they turn to the Lord in prayer and earnestly pray. Always the best thing to do. When desperate, look to God. And I wonder if God sometimes brings certain things to us in order to drive us to prayer. Not just to show us what prayer can do, 
But our great need is for God himself. And in prayer, that need is met. We don't necessarily need protection or deliverance or health or even the preventing of death. We need God. And sometimes circumstances are such that we go rushing to God, and that rushing we call prayer. And in this case, the church gathered together and they prayed earnestly. They prayed earnestly for Peter. And I'm not sure, by the way, that the text here gives us license to think that they were praying for Peter's release. And we always assume that because if, if it were us, that's what we'd be praying for. But later in the account, when they, oh, uh, later in the account, when they don't believe that Peter has been released, What do we think of them? We shake our heads at them and their lack of faith. That the answer for what they've been praying for was given and they didn't believe it. Well, I'm not sure. The text doesn't say anything about their praying for his release. In fact, nowhere in Acts does it say anything about anyone praying for anyone else's deliverance from persecution. In Acts chapter 4, they pray, but for greater boldness, not for deliverance. In Acts 16, Paul and Silas are in prison, but they're singing and praising, not praying for deliverance. And if here in Acts chapter 12, if they are praying for Peter's deliverance, it's unprecedented in Acts. It doesn't show up anywhere else. And besides that, when Peter is released, it catches everyone by surprise. No one expected it. And one of the things that we do know about the Christian in Acts is that when they prayed, they did so with confidence. And if they had been praying for Peter's Peter's release, surely some of them wouldn't have been surprised when it happened. And maybe the point is that no matter what they prayed for or prayed about, when trouble hit, their first response was to pray. As it happened, though, as we know, Peter was delivered. And it's, it's kind of a comical story. Peter asleep between the guards, all chained up. Two more guards just outside the door. And an angel suddenly shows up and there's light, maybe so Peter can see what he's doing. The angel strikes Peter to wake him up. And the chains just fall off Peter's wrists. Peter has to be told to get dressed and to put his sandals on. Parents of young children know what the angel feels like here, I think. They leave the cell. They walk past the guards. His doors just open before them. Peter, of course, not having had his coffee yet, thinks he's just having a vision and doesn't realize that this is really happening. Parents of young children might know what Peter feels like here too. When they finally get all the way outside, then the angel disappears and Peter suddenly realizes what has happened and that he's really free And he quickly hurries over to one of the places where he knows that there are people praying. And incidentally, I've wondered if Paul and Barnabas were there praying that night. They've just arrived in Jerusalem at the end of chapter 11. They leave Jerusalem after this story, chapter 12. And Barnabas is John Mark's cousin, and that's the house where people are praying. Tantalizing, but I wonder if they were there. So Peter arrives at the gate, knocks, 
The servant girl Rhoda comes, recognizes Peter's voice, calling softly. She rushes back inside without opening the gate. There's this wonderful scene where she breathlessly tells him that Peter is here. And they don't believe her, and they have a little committee meeting discussion about what's really happening. And Peter, the escaped prisoner, stands there knocking and calling, maybe hoping that the neighbors don't wake up. And eventually they let him in, and he briefly tells him what happened. Tells them to pass the information on to James. Different James, by the way. Jesus' brother this time. And slips off to another place to lie low for a while. In the morning, Peter's absence is discovered. and There's no way to account for it. So Herod, maybe reasonably, assuming an inside job, has the guards executed and he leaves town. And that's often where we think the story ends. Right? The power of prayer gains the release of Peter. And if this was a story about Peter, this would be the end. But it's not. Luke hasn't yet finished the story. He's got a loose end that he needs to tie up. He started the story with Herod. He's going to finish with Herod. And this is not an epilogue. Oh, by the way, if you're interested, let me tell you how Herod ended up. No, Luke is much more deliberate than that. Luke doesn't just write things to satisfy the interest of his readers. There is a punch coming yet. So what is it that happens to Herod? Having left Jerusalem for Caesarea after some time, he has an audience with a delegation from Tyre and Sidon, just north of Judea. There had been some friction between them, and they come to Herod, seeking his favor, seeking an audience. And they use Herod's chamberlain named Blastus to gain access for him. Many biblically named children in church these days. Uh, Here's a name for you future parents to consider, Blastus, if you're interested. So this delegation from Tyre and Sidon gained this audience with Herod. Look at verse 21. On an appointed day, Herod put on his royal robes, took his seat upon the throne and delivered an oration to them. And the people were shouting, the voice of a God and not of a man. And immediately an angel of the Lord struck him down because he did not give God the glory. And he was eaten by worms and breathed his last. This account is corroborated by Josephus, uh, who is a Jewish but not a Christian historian, who lived at this time. This is what Josephus says. He wrote this around the same time that the New Testament was being written. On the second day of which of the shows, uh, Herod put, a gar- put on a garment made wholly of silver and of a contexture truly wonderful and came into the theater early in the morning, at which time the silver of his garment, being illuminated by the fresh reflection of the sun- sun's rays upon it, shone out after a surprising manner and was so resplendent as to spread a horror over those who looked intently upon him. And presently his flatterers cried out, one from one place, another from another, though not for his good, that he was a god. And they added, Be thou merciful to us, for although we have hitherto reverenced thee only as a man, yet shall we henceforth own thee as superior to mortal nature." Upon this, the king did, not, did neither rebuke them nor reject their impious flattery. 
But as he presently afterward looked up, he saw an owl sitting upon a certain rope over his head and immediately understood that this bird was a messenger of ill tidings, as it had once been the messenger of good tidings to him. And he fell into the deepest sorrow. And a severe pain arose in his belly uh, and began in a most violent manner. Accordingly, he was carried into the palace and the rumor went abroad everywhere that he would certainly die in a little time. And when he had been quite worn out by the pain in his belly for five days, he departed this life. Luke made a comment in his gospel about how carefully he researched everything that he would write. And this account in the end of Acts chapter 12 is a historical statement about the death of Herod Agrippa. Acts 12 begins with Herod on the throne laying violent hands on some who belong to the church with Peter in prison. It looks hopeless and all the power is with Herod. But it ends with Peter free and God laying violent hands on Herod who is struck down by the angel of the Lord. And then Luke adds this final happily ever after statement. And this is the whole point of the story. Look at verse 24. This is why Luke wrote the book of Acts in the first place. But the word of God increased and multiplied. This passage, Acts chapter 12, is about the fact that the kings of the earth and all the powers at work on this planet cannot hinder the advance of the kingdom of God via his word and his church. And the whole book of Acts is about the progress of the word of God and the growth of God's church from Jerusalem to Rome, that God's Holy Spirit again exploded onto the disciples in chapter 2. God's power unleashed through them. People getting saved, miracles done. I said that already. But pretty soon it began to rattle the religious establishment. They tried to threaten the church into silence and it didn't work. And they got bolder and they preached with conviction. And all the while God was doing incredible things to demonstrate the reality of their message of Jesus Christ. Their proclamation of the word of God. Tensions within the church didn't slow this thing down. It got resolved and the the thing grew. The presence of hypocrites didn't slow it down. God judged them, and the church grew. Outright persecution didn't slow the thing down. Prison and beatings. It was only a matter of time before somebody gets killed. His name was Stephen, and his death sparked the most vicious opposition yet. But that only served to increase the advance of the kingdom to Samaria, to the Gentiles, even to Antioch, entirely out of the country. And the harder the enemies of God tried to squash this thing the more vibrant the church got. And now the king takes a hand. He can't slow it down either. The chapter starts with Herod exercising his muscle against the church. It ends with his death. And the kings of the earth will fall, and the word of God will increase and advance in power. Psalm chapter 2 says, Why do the nations rage and the peoples plot in vain? The kings of the earth have set themselves and the rulers take counsel together against the Lord and against his anointed one. But he who sits in heaven laughs and the Lord holds them in derision. 
Jesus said much later than that, Matthew 16, I will build my church and the gates of hell will not prevail against it. And how much less the power and the rulers of this world. Acts 12 is the last part of that section in Acts whose focus is the church in Jerusalem and Judea and Samaria. Chapter 13 begins the story of the church in the Gentile world ending up in Rome. And for those remaining 16 chapters of this book, there will be this very same theme. The word of God and those who belong to the church will be opposed sometimes brutally. But the, world will, the word will increase and prevail and the church will grow. And by the way, when Luke uses this phrase, word of God in Acts, what does he mean? All through Acts, when we see the apostles preaching the word in chapter 2 and 3 and 4 and 5 and 10 and 13, the word of God is the word of God concerning Jesus of Nazareth. And it's this. Jesus was God's chosen Messiah. Not only that, he is God's son. He did miracles during his life which demonstrated that God was with him. He was crucified and was raised to life by God all in accordance with the scriptures. He is Lord of all. He is the appointed judge of all. And forgiveness of sin is found only in him. That is the word of God. But it's not just the facts about Jesus either. It is a powerful word. And where it is proclaimed, it is transformative. It changes people. It brings people to faith. It just does. It has power in and of itself to bring repentance and faith, to convict and to comfort, and to draw people through Jesus to God. And that's why when the church, sorry, and that's why when the word of God goes forward, the church multiplies. And that's the story of Acts. Nothing can stop it. And it's as true now as ever. We look around our world and it looks like Herod is on the throne and the word of God is in chains. Ineffective or at best making a few minor gains here and there. But God is working a great reversal. What happened in Acts chapter 12 has happened to countless people in history. It's a picture of the salvation of people. Imprisoned people set free and released from the things that imprison them, like unbelief and sin and fear. But it's also so much more than that. What God did, if you're a Christian, in your life and in mine, and what he did in Acts chapter 12 is what he is doing in the world and in history. He is working a great reversal in which the kingdoms of this world will become the kingdoms of our God and of the Lord Jesus Christ, and it cannot, it cannot be stopped. Is Acts chapter 12 a call to prayer? Yes, I think so, but not primarily. Is it about the power of prayer? I doubt it. Peter was delivered, yes, but only temporarily. Church tradition tells us that he was, in fact, executed much later in Rome. And what about James? He was killed by Herod. Sometimes followers of Jesus get killed. Get persecuted. Acts chapter 12 is about allegiance. It's about victory. It's a declaration that no matter the appearance of the moment, the word of God increases. And that all who plant themselves in opposition to the word of God will fall. 
and those who align themselves with the word of God concerning Jesus Christ ultimately will stand. This is a word of tremendous encouragement to the Christian. In a world in which it appears that the kingdom of God is on the defensive, and the forces of secularism or religion or sin or violence is on the rise, Acts 12 reminds us, proclaims to us, that the victory is God's, and that his word concerning Jesus will certainly be fulfilled. A couple of weeks ago, I was at a dinner hosted by Transworld Radio, an organization that we have supported for a long time. And a Chinese pastor came and talked to us about the situation of Christianity in China. In the year 1900, how many Christians were there in China, roughly, would you say? Guess. A higher number than you're thinking, maybe. 90,000. In 1949, the missionaries were expelled from China. There were 800,000 Christians in China at that point. Missionaries all kicked out. The oppression of the state. How many Christians? 800,000 in 1949. How many Christians in 1982? Guesses. 3 million. 1996, 14 years later, 10 million. 2006, 10 years later, 25 million. And that's the official government statistics. And this guy said, you know, they're very conservative. It is conceivable that there are more Christians in China today than there are people in Canada. The word of God will go forward. It will bear fruit. His kingdom has come, is coming, will come in fullness. Herod was on the throne and they called him a god, not a man. God struck him down and he died. And it can look today as if other things are on the throne and reign, reign supreme. In the world, violence or hunger, religion, secularism, atheism... In our culture, media and money, skepticism, mockery of the things of God, government, selfishness, doubt, or me, me, me. These things are not on the throne. But against these things, the word of God sometimes doesn't look like much. Did God really say, you can't expect me to believe the church is irrelevant? I respect Jesus, but surrender to him? They called Jesus a man and not the son of God. And they struck him down and he died. But God the Father raised him up and exalted him to the highest place. And one day, every knee in heaven, earth, under the earth, every knee will bow and every tongue confess that Jesus is Lord. To the glory of God the Father. Jesus is God's anointed king of heaven and earth and he will reign forever and ever. I have chosen where to place my allegiance. Most of you know my own health issues and you have been praying earnestly for me. And in truth, I'm not sure which part of Acts chapter 12 is my story. Am I Peter? who gets delivered, or am I James, who gives his life? 
I don't assume one way or the other. I don't think the Bible gives me the right to assume or to claim anything beyond the fact that God will glorify his son, Jesus Christ, in my life. But this I do know. I have made my choice. And I have given my allegiance to the word of God concerning his son, Jesus. That God's declaration is true. Jesus is king. And victory is his. And I will not call out the praises of this world decked out in its silver robes and calling out so compellingly for me to follow its ways. For the ways of this world are rotting from the inside and will be struck down by God. The throne of heaven and earth and the throne in my own heart is for Jesus alone. Kids and young people, please listen. You are drawing into that time of life when you are faced with a choice. To what will you give your allegiance? To what will you pledge your life to? And you look around and it looks like to align yourself with Jesus is to back a loser. The world, our media, our whole culture, on the other hand, is dressed up in silver robes and seems to be in power. They say the Bible is outmoded. You can't really believe that that's God's word, can you? If Jesus actually lived, he had some good things to say, but to surrender to him as a living Lord's a little extreme, isn't it? A little religion might be okay, but don't get too radical. No, no. Why not seek your own comfort above all? Be good, but don't be too good. Have some fun. Make a little room for Christianity in your life if you want, but make sure that you stay in charge. Seek your career. Seek your pleasure. Follow your heart. I want you to know today that anything that sets itself up against the absolute lordship of Jesus Christ will ultimately fall and be struck down. And I want you to know that to align yourself with Jesus is to back a winner. And those who name him as Lord will stand. I want you to know, young people, that Jesus of Nazareth is the Son of God and that to live your life centered upon him is both the fullest life and the safest course. Congregation, some of you are afraid or at least lament the trajectory of the world. You simply long for the day when Jesus gets you out of here because you think it's only getting worse and worse on this pathetic planet. I want you to know that Jesus Christ is the king of this earth. And the word of God concerning Jesus Christ is increasing and the establishment of his reign is even now taking place on this earth and cannot be stopped. In all of us here this morning, I want you to know with full assurance today that if you have placed your trust in Christ, you're with the one whose eternal victory has already been secured and your faith will be vindicated. There is a choice always to be made. Will you give your allegiance to Jesus, living under his good authority, or will you not? To surrender to Jesus is to stand with God. To resist or ignore him is to fall. And Pastor John Stott, in his writing on this text, ended with these words, and I end with these words as well. Tyrants may be permitted for a time to boast and bluster, 
oppressing the church and hindering the spread of the gospel, but they will not last. In the end, their empire will be broken and their pride abased. Let's pray. Our Lord Jesus Christ, a phrase I choose very deliberately, Savior, Son of God, but you are the Lord Jesus Christ. I praise you for your Lordship. I declare and proclaim and believe that you will reign forever in perfection. And that your Father and ours, God, is effecting a great reversal in which the the powers and kingdoms and values that oppose his reign will be brought down. Not looking for a political, militant church establishing a Christian state. We just know, God, that you are Lord of all things. You have given all authority in heaven and earth to your Son and that his reign is advancing as lives get changed even to the point where death no longer even wins. We are thankful that you have acted in our lives to make us your people, more through your action than our own will. We're thankful. And I pray that we as your people will continue to declare the word of the Lord, not just to preach at people, but to proclaim the reality of Christ, to tell the truth and to live with integrity and authenticity so that they'll know that what we say about Jesus is truth. Praise to you, God the Father. Praise to you, Jesus the Lord.